0: Life Management Science Labs would like to acknowledge that we live and produce this podcast on the traditional lands of the Wurundjeri people. We'd also like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the lands of our listeners and our international colleagues. We'd like to pay our respects to their elders past, present and emerging. Hello and welcome to Reloscope, the Relationship Science Insights podcast produced by LMSL, the Life Management Science Labs. We are champions in life management science, providing structured insights informed by science and inspired by practice on key aspects of conscious living. Each week, we bring you scientific and practical insights on each element with the expert knowledge of professionals in the field. I'm your host, Aditi Kuti. Let's get on with the show. And today I'm joined by Dr. Talal Al-Saleem. He is a infidelity recovery expert, and we're going to be talking today about infidelity um, in general who, what, why, when, where, and why it occurs. Can you introduce yourself, Dr. Talal?
1: Of course. First of all, thank you so much for having me on uh, your show. My name is Dr. Talal Al-Saleem. I'm the creator of Systematic Affair Recovery Therapy and the founder of the Infidelity Counseling Center. And I'm uh, known as the pioneer of uh, modern infidelity counseling.
0: That's a lot, <laughs> a pioneer of modern infidelity counseling. Uh, real quick, what exactly do you mean by modern infidelity counseling?
1: What I mean by that, believe it or not, that despite the fact that we've been dealing with infidelity since the dawn of uh, the concept of committed relationship, uh, up to, to this point, Uh, to the point of me creating systematic affair recovery therapy, there hasn't been any tailor-made treatment method for infidelity. Mm -hmm. There have been a lot of general models for relationship issues that therapists have been adopting to treat infidelity, but uh, nobody has uh, created a model that's tailor-made for infidelity until I created systematic affair recovery therapy.
0: Right, right, and we're definitely going to delve um, into a lot of that across the episode as we chat to you. But real quick, before we get into any of that, we have a section called "Have you met Dr. Salal Al Salim?" Um, where we get to know you a little bit. I'm just going to ask you some really quick questions, and you don't have to think too hard. All you have to do is tell me the first answer that comes to your head.
1: <laughs> okay. Yep.
0: Yeah, all good. Uh, what of is course. your <laughs> What is your favorite book?
1: My favorite book is The Hero's Journey by Joseph Campbell, okay. and uh, it's the reason it's my favorite book because it combines two of the things I'm passionate about. The first one is comparative mythology, and the second one is the universal human themes that we all share. So, and I'm you know, uh, and I'm very passionate about anthropology. That was actually my undergraduate training before pursuing psychology.
0: That's really cool. Mythology is a big, big um, passion of mine as well. History in general, but mythology as well. So I have had to do readings for university um, in, uh, from that book. So that's pretty cool. Uh, what about a favorite movie?
1: Favorite movie uh, would have to be... Uh, I watch a lot of movies, but my most recent favorite would be the Walking Phoenix, The Joker And the reason that I love uh, the retelling of the story because how it tackle a serious issue like mental health illness, and how as a society we can be, either a risk factor or protective factor.
0: Right. Yeah. Plus,
1: I feel like uh, Walking Phoenix did a phenomenal job also uh, conveying the character.
0: He's a fantastic actor for sure. Um, What about a favorite podcast or a podcast that you're listening to at the moment?
1: Um, I've been an avid listener of Lab. It's on NPR. Uh, It's one of my favorite podcasts, because uh, the folks who put the podcast, they tackle very unique and complicated scientific concepts. uh, But they also break them down in a very entertaining and accessible way to everybody. So it's one of my favorite.
0: Yeah, science communication is what we're all about, um, for sure. Uh, A famous role model that you looked up to?
1: It would have to be some aspect of Charles Darwin, specifically the aspect of uh, being brave enough to present a controversial idea and sticking to his guns uh, despite the criticism that he received. I find that admirable in scientists.
0: mm, mm definitely. Um, what about a the last course that you completed?
1: The last course that I completed in terms of the ones that I have created or the ones that I actually took?
0: Either one. You can you can talk about ones you've <laughs> so taken the, or created.
1: Yeah. So the thing that thing comes to mind, so, so I have uh, the systematic affair recovery therapy training platform and I create courses. So when you said course, I'm thinking about the most recent course that I created, which is uh, titled Plagues, Politics and Relationship Vulnerability. And the course explore the relationship between global events and how it impacts us at the individual level, as well as our interpersonal relationships.
0: Right. Yeah. Definitely a very current one. I think after the last few years, uh, for yes. sure. Um, but thank you, uh, uh, Dr. Thalal. You are known now. Um, <laughs> thank you so much for <laughs> introducing yourself to us. Uh, we might move on, I guess, to our main part of the episode, which is infidelity, um, and all the questions around it. But before we kind of focus in on infidelity, I want to talk about relationships in general. How do you define a relationship?
1: I believe relationships are partnerships that we enter with other individuals, and those partnerships are based on the expected promise of need fulfillment, reciprocity. I feel that's the common theme of any kind of relationships, but uh, for sure the uh, romantic relationship that we enter in.
0: Yeah, for sure. Um, And in your opinion, does a relationship still hold the same meaning it does today than it did maybe a few decades ago?
1: It depends on who you ask. And, you know, some people joke always, as you know, that's a sign of getting older when you start to be dissatisfied and say, back in my days. <laughs> yeah. uh, so so I, I guess from a scientific perspective, I do believe uh, the concept of relationship and how we interpret it in our personal life have evolved backward and forward throughout the years. I do believe in the current state of things. I, I don't think people take their relationship as serious as they ought to. Uh, whether this is a reflection of being busy with modern life and not having the time and resources. But I do feel like we live in a day and age where people are not really good at making their relationship a priority. Uh, I also tend to feel that uh, a lot of times, I see a lot of clients where they really lack the relationship maturity. And relationship maturity is one of the most important ingredients that you need to have a successful relationship. And the two main ways that we acquire relationship maturity, is through um, family of origin and the models that have been shown to us. And those are not always going to be the greatest ones. Uh, you might win the lottery and be you know, part of a family of origin where you have a good model to follow, and sometimes you don't. And another source of uh, relationship maturity is how many long-term relationship experience people have under their belt before they enter into a relationship. Mm -hmm. So based on what I see, I don't feel like uh, many people are strong in the area of relationship maturity, which causes them to struggle on the individual level and a lot of times cause those relationships to fail.
0: Mm. Do you feel like perhaps focusing on that latter reason, you know, the um, number of long term relationships that we've had, do you think that because people are kind of moving more towards short term and casual arrangements that perhaps that's why that maturity isn't developing?
1: I think I think that's part of it, too, because I do believe that advances in technology open, you know, made a lot of things easier. And sometimes easy doesn't mean good quality. Mm -hmm. Uh, I I think, again, I'm always also interested in, you know, it's funny you ask about the, the movies and books, because I really believe how we evolve and cultural concepts, there is a direct correlation between what you see in the media and what's around you. I feel like there's a Mm bi-directional relationship. So there is some influences there as well too. Uh, I do think that casual can be convenient, but also despite the convenience, I work with a lot of clients who have those casual relationships that they feel sense of emptiness. Uh, Yes, it might be convenient and easy, but I really feel like we are wired for partnerships. Uh, And that doesn't mean uh, a rigid construct of uh, heteronormative type of relationship. I really think it could mean anything as long as people are committed to a well-defined type of relationship and they're able to honor their relationship contract.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And I think it's also just, you know, as humans, we see community, we see groups with social creatures at the end of the day. So, so.
1: sure. And I, and I think, you know, there, there is an adaptive value that is that, that we are social animals. But also, I think even if you look at it from an evolutionary biology perspective, you know, that the human offsprings, it takes a long time for it to develop and require mm-hmm. uh, pulling in the resources, not just one person. You need to have, you know, a family and a community.
0: Yeah, that's a really good way of looking at it. Um, moving on, I guess, specifically to infidelity, how how would you define infidelity?
1: Well, the first thing I want to say, infidelity is considered one of the most challenging concept to define. This was actually the first puzzle that I have to solve, because when you look in the literature about infidelity, uh, there is no agreed upon operational definition of infidelity, and mm-hmm. that's a problem on two different levels from a free research perspective and from a clinical perspective. From a research perspective, everything that we think we know about infidelity, we need to re-examine and re-question, something as simple as prevalent rates of infidelity. If you look in a specific communities, let's just say United States, for example, you can find studies that says infidelity is as prevalent as you know 2.6%, and you have studies that says it's 87.7%. Mm-hmm. That's a wide margin of error. Why do you have this is because each researcher is using a different definition of infidelity when they are collecting their data, which is going to skew the result. Uh, but also, on an individual level, I, p- people have different idea of what's considered to be uh, faithfulness and not faithfulness. Uh, even when you have two people in a relationship, one of the first thing that we have to address in, in the therapy room is... Why are we here? And, you know, you ask yeah. one 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 member of the dyad, like, why are you here? And they say, well, I'm here because my partner cheated on me. You ask the other person, why are you here? Well, I'm here because I did something silly or I did something stupid. Mm-hmm. Well, if it's something, you know, silly and something stupid and you call it infidelity, then you exaggerated a big problem. Uh, if it, I mean, you exaggerated a small problem. And if it's actually... Uh, uh, the, 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 you can make the argument on the opposite end as well too, and that's why having the right label is crucial for establishing the therapeutic alliance and setting the stage for what we're going to work on. So this brings me back to my definition of infidelity. Uh, so the context for this, I believe that all we all have the capacity of living alone and fulfilling our own emotional and sexual needs. Can we do it? Sure, but it's a quality of life questions, which means that when you decide To share your life with somebody else to help fulfill some of those needs, there needs to be a relationship contract that talks about how many partners we have in this relationship. Is it one? Is it two? Is it 20? And what are the emotional and physical needs that are expected to be fulfilled by the partners in this contract? And to what extent the fulfillment of those needs is exclusive to the partners that you have in this relationship? So the moment anyone in this relationship outsource the fulfillment of any of those needs to somebody else outside the relationship without consent, you are breaching the contract. And that breach of contract of exclusivity becomes the threshold for defining infidelity. Uh, the beauty about this definition is that it accommodates uh, the construct of infidelity, not just for traditional monogamous relationships. Uh, it, it actually you can apply it to relationships that are poly or a relationship that uh, who doesn't fit the traditional uh, parameters of exclusivity but also gives you a moral buffer between you and your clients because your clients are asking you to to call it what do you think dr Talal is this infidelity or not so if Talal says this is infidelity is this is not because this is Talal's moral system or bias. This is based on your relationship contract. And I'm just applying that law to the specifics of your relationship contract.
0: Yeah. And it leaves, it leaves a lot of room for flexibility because these days, not everyone is in um, a monogamous relationship. A lot of couples are considering consensual non-monogamy and polyamory, as you mentioned. So it it doesn't make sense to Group all of that in infidelity when they're actually being quite faithful to each other. They're agreeing on, you know, they've got agreed sure. upon terms.
1: Well, no, well, not only that, but the, even these folks, I, I see poly folks and people in open relationship who also struggle a little bit fidelity, but it's defined differently for them, right? Yeah. It's it's that consent piece rather than the exclusivity piece. Uh, or, you know, it's a breach, a different level of exclusivity that they had with one another that was supposed to reserve to one partner versus all of the partners. And this is assuming that people actually have a healthy definition of what it means to be poly, but that's a topic for a different podcast.
0: <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, how, you know, how does infidelity affect relationships? What have you seen in your experience?
1: Um And if we're talking within the confines of the relationship where infidelity happens with your significant Mm -hmm. other, uh, infidelity is one of the most destructive acts uh, that people can commit in the relationship. This is why the title of my first book was Infidelity, the Best Worst Thing uh, That Could Happen to Your Marriage. Uh, it, It is one of the most awful things that one can experience because it shakes the foundation of trust uh it, it creates the sense of trauma that is really difficult to imagine uh, a future where you can rebuild the relationship and rebuild trust. Uh, but also, despite the trauma, it is a golden opportunity uh, that can be used for a catalyst for change. I really, truly believe you know trauma can be a catalyst for change, whether it is change for the uh, poor dynamics in the current relationship that led to the infidelity or change to say that this is not a relationship that I need to be in and time to look for a healthier relationship. So it's, uh, there is a silver lining for it.
0: Mm-hmm. Sometimes in, in kind of times of great change, there's a lot of new opportunities that pop up from that as well, even when, even when it seems pretty dire at the time. Um, how would you, how would you, what, give me a second. Why, why do you feel people cheat? Is there a scientific explanation for cheating?
1: Absolutely. So this would give me an opportunity to talk about a common myth people have. Mm-hmm. So if you ask the average person, and I would argue even if you ask the average clinician, why does infidelity happen? Most people would say people cheat because people are not happy with their partner or relationship dissatisfaction. It is true that one of the leading causes of infidelity is relationship dissatisfaction, but it's not the only one. Uh, We all have seen those relationships or we've been in those relationships where you just don't get it. You see people, they seem to be compatible. They seem to be with the right partner. Partner is willing and ready to fulfill all their needs. But despite that, they deal with infidelity. Well, sometimes infidelity happens because of an individual factor that has nothing to do with the relationship. And sometimes infidelity happens because of environmental factor that is you know, bigger than the relationship. So when I train clinicians to think about the etiology of infidelity, I encourage them to think about it from three different lenses. The individual factors, the relationship factors, and the environmental factors. Uh, The individual factors, Common individual factors that lead to infidelity are mental health issues that has not been treated or has been identified and you know people are not engaged in, in a proper way to address those issues. Or sometimes it could be trauma that they experience in family of origin or uh, past relationships. Uh, a common example of individual factors that lead to infidelity in the arena of mental health is uh, sex addiction. Uh, now, if you look in the DSM five, which is you know the the book of diagnosis that we use as clinicians, sex addiction is actually not an official diagnosis because clinicians are split. The you, you know does it exist? Does it not exist. But we all seen signs of hypersexuality and seeing the people who their thoughts are predominant, you know, dominated by sexual thoughts. If you are an individual who struggled with those issues, it's going to be a lot easier for you to engage in fidelity because you deal with those issues. Another individual factor is personality disorders. Common folks that I see in my practice uh, with unfaithful is uh, dealing with narcissistic personality disorder or antisocial personality disorder. If you're dealing with a narcissist, part of it is this need for uh, attention from multiple sources. Even if they have a partner who is able and ready to give them attention, it's not enough. They need it from multiple sources. Uh, Antisocial, uh, the hallmark of that diagnosis is the disregard to the right of others in general, uh, meaning that if I'm antisocial, I might sign up for exclusivity knowing real well I'm not going to honor it. So that's just kind of a snapshot of the individual factors that lead to infidelity. When we look at the relationship factors that lead to infidelity, uh, we can spend hours talking about all different uh, ones, but I'll give you the, the common theme. Think about any kind of relationship dynamic that will prevent one or both partners from meeting each other's needs. And you can end up with infidelity uh, because again, uh, we enter a relationship with the expectation that our partner is going to be fulfilling some of those needs. If those needs are not being fulfilled, they're not going to go away. They're just going to find an, you know, an outside outlet to manifest. Uh, a Common relationship factors that lead to infidelity is poor communication and poor conflict resolution skills. I would tell folks that in order for you to get your needs met in the relationship, uh, you have to know what those needs are. But step two, you have to be able to have good communication skills to talk to your partner about those needs that are not being met. And sometimes you have people who are good at communicating their needs not being met, but they're not good at conflict resolution and figure out why the needs are not being met and what we want to do to fix it. All right. So far, so good. So that's so we covered individual factors and relationship factors. Do I have time to talk about the environmental factors?
0: Please go ahead.
1: Okay. <laughs> so I would have to say the environmental factors is the most ignored lens of etiology in research as well as in clinical practice. Uh, there, there was a, a website called Ashley Madison. I don't know if you heard of uh, it.
0: Yeah, yeah, the one with the All data right. breach.
1: Yep. 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 The one with the data breach. Yep. Yep. So for for the listeners or folks who are watching this who don't know this, Ashley Madison is the website for people who are wanting to engage in affairs. Uh, Their tagline is life is short, have an affair. So there was a data breach that gave researchers a golden opportunity to analyze a large set of data about the socioeconomical factors for the folks who are on this website. And I'll just choose one. Uh, maybe, maybe two. I'll, I'll, we'll start with one. So uh, one thing that stood out to me, and this is something that was consistent in my in what I see in clinical practice, is the type of jobs people have could actually influence their likelihood of engaging in fidelity. Uh, so here's my disclaimer. I'm going to share some of the common jobs that have high prevalence rates of infidelity. Please know, just because you have this job or your partner has this job doesn't mean they're unfaithful. It just means that you have higher probability right, for yep. inviting infidelity. Uh, I'll talk about the category of folks who are in the military. Uh, Why do folks in the military have higher prevalence rates of infidelity? One, there is the frequent deployment that put a lot of stress on the individual and the family life. Uh, Two, oftentimes when people are deployed, they're deployed in a different state, different country, uh, which means that their level of anonymity is a lot higher. Uh, So if you have those fantasies about being unfaithful, it's going to be easier for you to cross those lines because who's going to know? Another aspect of environmental factors is cultural norms. Uh, You know, if you're part of a group, a cultural group, macro or micro, and the cultural norm doesn't frown upon infidelity or see it as a sign of masculinity, you're going to be more likely to engage in it. Uh, There is a common cultural norm for folks in the military. This is what you do when you're deployed. Your partner do this. I mean, your 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 uh, your comrades and your your fellow peers are engaged in this, so it's, it's not a big deal because other people are doing it as well too, so that's just one environmental factors that could lead to infidelity.
0: Right, right. What out of curiosity is what are the other jobs? I I, I want to know more now. <laughs> sure. Uh,
1: so, so again, this is not this is not a, a, a full list. This is just kind of like think of it as the the. The, the, the top three. Uh, the reason I say this, because in my most recent article, people were commenting, like, okay, what about this? i like, well, no, there are other jobs <laughs> right. other than these ones. So that's yeah. another disclaimer. Uh, another job that I see is folks who are um, working as police officers, firefighters, uh, first responders. Uh, what do these guys have in common? Oh, nurses, what do they have in common? They usually have long hours, graveyard shifts. Uh, They're exposed to high level of trauma, more than the average person um, or more than the civilian. And research shows that when people have exposure to trauma and the trauma is not being treated, it does actually affect uh, your impulse control and self-control get depleted. Uh, that there are a lot of research in that area. But also, common complaint that I hear from the folks who are in those relationship is that there is a disconnect. You, they usually have a civilian partner, because if you have two people who work in the same field, it's going to be a struggle for them to have a family and raise their kids. So oftentimes they have a civilian partner. And the civilian partner usually report a disconnect between them and the other person because the other person cannot talk about their job or uh, they feel that you know their partner won't get them if they talk about it because they cannot relate. And sometimes it's classified. Sometimes they can't even talk about it. So what happens, they, uh, they usually have strong bonds with the people that they work with, and sometimes trauma bonds the people who work uh, in the same field. But also, uh, you know, they spend a lot of time together, especially if they're traveling and, and doing these uh, long-term uh, placements. Eventually, you know, that strong bond between the peers blur the boundaries. Uh, You have both people who are probably struggling in their relationship because of the challenges of their job, and those blurred boundaries grow into infidelity, especially if they actually are able to connect with one another uh, at an occupational level. Uh, Another job is the folks who work in high-pressure sales or uh, the cutthroat industry, corporate Pressure, where where you know where you have to wine and dine your clients and sign that deal no matter what the cost is. Uh, these are the type of jobs where there is a quid pro quo type of dynamics. Where if you want this promotion, you have to do X, Y, and Z. So sometimes success in those areas occupationally require bending the rules. It's not because somebody's interested in doing something else. Mm-hmm. And those folks also deal with the travel and the higher level anonymity because if you have a job that give you that cover it's going to be easier for you to engage in those uh, behaviors because the risk of discovery is minimized.
0: Mm. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. There seems to be a common theme in general of like distance from your partner, anonymity and long, long hours um, with a lot of those. Yeah. Uh, Is there, is there a sign, an early sign of our partner cheating? Are we even able to tell apart from, apart from the job? (laughs)
1: Well, I I, I think uh, there are many signs, I'll share some of the common ones. Uh, when, When somebody is already crossed the lines of infidelity, their bandwidth for paying attention to their partner is going to be decreased. Now the relationship might have been strained already, right? But when you have somebody else that you're seeing on the side, that's going to limit your availability to your partner. So they're going to be an increase in whatever relationship deficit that the people had pre-existing the infidelity and crossing those lines. Uh, usually there is a decreased sense of intimacy, not just sexually, but also emotionally. Uh, you have people who just coexist as co-parents. Uh, you know, they when they engage in conversation, Conversation tends to be superficial or just goal-directed about the kids and household chores or things along those lines. Uh, the, there's also a high level of secrecy. You notice that the unfaithful is more secretive about their interactions. Uh, you know, hiding their phone, uh, changing their password, or you know, maybe they used to give you access and now they don't. Uh, to me, those are clear signs of something's going on because I really believe in a healthy relationship. There shouldn't be any secrets. Uh, and sometimes people kind of confuse this. They feel like, okay, well, I need my autonomy, so there is something that should be for my eyes only. Well, it, to, to me, if you're worried about what your partner is going to to see or hear, then you're probably doing something that you're not supposed to uh, Having transparency does not take away your autonomy. It's just really an indication of how much trust you have in your relationship. That doesn't mean that people have to micromanage each other and check on each other all the time. To me, it's just really as a as a premise. I always give the analogy, you know, for the tra- balance between autonomy and transparency. You know, you live in, in a house with multiple rooms and there are doors. You know, I can lock those doors. I don't have to lock them. I can keep the door closed. If you're my partner and want to see what's behind door number one, number two, ask me and I'll open the door. I'll show you because I don't have anything to hide. I think that's a healthy balance for this economy and transparency.
0: I think consent is kind of a really big aspect in that, and that you know, you're know you allowing people into your space. But also because relationships are formed on trust, you really shouldn't have a reason to, to hide anything. Is that something that you would have I described it correctly or am I am I off
1: you're, you're, you're spot on and, and I think that's there's a difference and, and that's why how people enter a relationship why they enter the relationship and the baggage they bring with them can also be a factor and that's what I'm saying sometimes mm-hmm. the seeds of infidelity were uh, planted a long time ago before you met your current person I'll give an example of that one so sometimes and, and actually they, they, this was one of the most uh, interesting finds that I came across at my research, it's whether or not you experience your infidelity in past relationship or in your family of origin can actually be a predictive factor of whether or not you're going to be dealing with that in your relationship, whether as you becoming unfaithful or you suspecting your partner, even though they're not doing anything that they're not supposed to, right? Mm-hmm. So so I'll just give you the example, and I know it seems to be going all the place, but I promise I will answer your question. When people discover infidelity... Sometimes people are compelled to tell their kids, you know, did you know that dad or mom did xy and z? And and sometimes people do this because they feel like, you know, they need to share this with somebody. Now, if you're a kid growing up and exposed to parental infidelity and you have your parents on a pedestal, that's going to shake your foundation of what relationships are, right? So, there's two main trajectories. You either going to say, okay, well, I guess nobody has value for fidelity. This is something that, you know, if my parents did it, who am I to, to to uphold the standard that my parents were not to uphold and can cause you to have low value for fidelity? Or it can cause you to just be fearful of relationship and shutting down or enter relationship with extreme cautious, being suspicious of somebody who didn't even give you a reason to worry about them. And if you accuse somebody of being unfaithful, even though they're... Actually, being faithful, eventually, <laughs> that system's going to break down. Whether they're going to actually be unfaithful, or not different story. But some people say, "You're not okay." If I'm a cheater, I may as well just do do the crime. If you're going to ask me to do uh, the time, mm. uh, but so, so that's why you know really the the how, how, what we bring to other relationship can affect the level of trust and how that being handled can either be a risk factor or protective factor.
0: Mm. Speaking of, you know, a lot of kind of those factors happening before the relationship itself, what do you think of the phrase once a cheater, always a cheater? Is that accurate?
1: Uh, I'm curious about your opinion on this one and I'll give you mine. Mine.
0: Um, I think that if you get away with it once, it's easy for you to think that you'll get away with it again. It really depends on how it went for you the first time, I think, and the impact that it left on you. That's what I think. I think it really depends on the instance, yeah.
1: And I think there is a a validity to to that argument. Mm -hmm. I I really believe once a cheater, always a cheater, is applicable to certain people, not to everybody. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I would say the ones where I've seen it consistent, where I really, you know, when I work with somebody for like, okay, does this person is able and willing to make those changes? The folks who are de- who were unfaithful because of individual factors tend to be the ones who fall in that category, but not all of them, right? And this, is especially if we're talking about somebody with personality disorders, because personality disorders are treatable, but they are very challenging to treat. Uh, we'll, we'll use some fancy term: egocentric, egodystonic. You came across those terms.
0: I have not, no, but okay. tell me about
1: them. So, so, so two categories in mental health disorders, egosyntonic and egodystonic. Uh, one category, these are the people who actually know that the way they're living their life is not the way to go, which caused them a lot of clinical distress, and they're motivated to change. So if somebody's dealing with depression or anxiety, it doesn't feel good, it's not normal, I want to change that, I recognize that in myself. <laughs> if you are somebody with uh, cluster B personality disorders, whether antisocial or narcissistic personality disorders, you don't feel the same way. You, you are a-okay with your life. It's the world who's not bending to your will, right? Mm-hmm. So, you know, f- from that vantage point, you know, if you got away with it, right why change that behavior because fundamentally you don't have any problem with that behavior right and that's why i think that certain people can fit that category of once a cheater is always a cheater but i would say that you know if somebody was unfaithful in a past relationship and now they're being unfaithful in this new relationship the circumstances might be different maybe their first infidelity was because of a relationship deficit that doesn't mean that you know the current issue is uh, similar It could be vastly different. And that's why I'm saying it's just really assessing each unique case uh, to get at the etiology and assess people's motivation and desire for making those changes.
0: Mm -hmm. And when you've got so many different factors that come into infidelity, it can't really, you can't have a blanket phrase like that that applies to everyone. For sure.
1: But, but, but you know, th- this goes back to our original question about, you know, how, how people are viewing relationships and yeah. people looking for casual... T- I really feel like nowadays, people bandwidth for understanding information, everybody wants just bite-sized information. And I think that's why phrases like this stick, because people don't want to make their brain work, right?
0: <laughs> yeah. Yeah, for sure. No nuance. A lack of nuance, definitely. Yeah. How does uh, is, is it possible to fix a relationship once one of the parties has cheated
1: perfect so so this is one thing unique about the systematic affair recovery therapy model that i developed i always tell clients as well as clinicians the goal of infidelity counseling should not be repairing the relationship. The goal of infidelity counseling should be healing from this trauma to make sure that it doesn't control your life, regardless whether it allows you to repair the relationship or if uh, you're going to go your separate ways. Uh, there are a lot of people who are able and willing to repair their relationship and make it better and stronger than it was prior to the discovery of the infidelity. Uh, and there are some people who are just not going to be able to to do so based on the unique circumstances of why the infidelity happened and in their relationship. I always give the example of um, infidelity like a heart attack for the relationship. Uh, I, I think of it this way: I, I think we all know at a basic level that you know we need to eat better, we need to you know not eat fast food and exercise so that we don't so that we're healthy, right? But not all of us are going to live this way unless something really bad happened, like a heart attack. And when something like this happened, it's a serious wake-up call. And some people say, okay, I I need to make some changes, and this is the time to eat better and exercise better than I ever did in my life because I want to live. And some people kind of continue doing the same thing that they were doing. And that's the part about the catalyst for change. Infidelity is a heart attack to the relationship. If you're dealing with your infidelity in your life, then some there's something seriously wrong in your life, whether at the individual level, the relationship level, and environmental level. If you actually take the time to identify those factors, and those factors are something that can be fixed, then you're going to have a better life than before, because at least now you uncovered all these factors that you've been choosing to not to, to look at.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think that's a really good way of putting it, um, the heart attack of the relationship. I think that's definitely an easy way to explain things. Is it possible to prevent infidelity? I know you touched on that a little bit in terms of identifying factors, but I'm assuming it's not the kind of thing you can really predict that you're going to either engage in or that your partner is going to engage in.
1: I think that's a fair statement to make about anything in life. Really, nobody can uh, predict anything, but that doesn't mean we don't do our due diligence to introspect individually, as well as do our due diligence to research. Uh, I think people can minimize the potential for dealing with infidelity if certain things happened. So, for example, on the individual level, a way to prevent infidelity is by do, doing a system check and, you know, being honest with yourself, do you have any issues? Do you have sex addiction? Do you have pornography addiction? Do you have depression anxiety? Exactly. What what individual issues that you have that have impacted your life that you haven't dealt with? Mm-hmm. You know, is it is there a past trauma in family of origin that happened to you that you haven't dealt with? I think if you're able to on a regular basis assess yourself and making sure that those issues being treated well, you significantly drastically minimize the chances of dealing with infidelity for individual factor. Uh, also, this is a, uh, an individual and a relationship aspect of prevention. Uh, if you take the time to figure out who you are as a person, uh, what type of relationship that's suited for you, and what type of partner or partners who are compatible with you, you're also going to reduce you know, significantly the chances of dealing with infidelity because of a relationship factor. To me, that's what I've seen. The prevention is by being able to introspect individually and being really good about figuring out who you are and what type of relationship that uh, you're going to sign up for. Mm-hmm. And you know, and on the environmental factors, of course, you know, if you're in a job that put, if you're in a job that is not conducive for having a healthy relationship, that's the time to <laughs> either exit, find a new career choice, or you know, or find a relationship that doesn't require any kind of exclusivity
0: yeah yeah for sure um how how do you bounce back from infidelity in a relationship
1: it depends on how we're defining bounce back so how do you define bouncing back
0: so i guess it really depends you know like you said whether you choose to stay or whether you don't choose to stay really defines how how that infidelity is managed in the future but you know, if you do choose to stay, how do you bounce back? And also, conversely, if you don't choose to stay, how do you manage, I'm assuming, the trauma that that would have caused?
1: Perfect. Can I give a long answer?
0: Absolutely. I love a long okay, answer. Perfect.
1: <laughs> perfect. So, um, I think the first, in order for people to bounce back, regardless of what that looks like, they actually have to engage in a therapeutic process that help them make sense of this trauma. It is important for people to understand what happened, why it happened, assess the damage, and figure out what's the best way to heal from this. Whether healing as individuals or healing uh, by repairing their relationship, uh, and 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 this is why the narrative of the infidelity is the most important part about the process. This is what make or break the process because. Whether I'm the unfaithful or the betrayed, in order for me to answer the question of should I rebuild, I have to truly uncover what exactly I did and why I did it. Because those those, this data is going to help me decide, you know, figure out what I'm up against, and if these things are going to be something that I'm willing to work on or be part of working on. If I'm the betrayed partner. Uh, But when we talk about how do people choose, do we rebuild together or do we uh, heal individually? Like once they got the story. How do they make that decision? I don't think it's the therapist uh, position to tell people you should stay or leave. I really believe as a therapist, your job is to help people ask the right question and give them the information that they need to make that decision. But it's their decision, not yours, because they're going to be the one who's living with the consequences and successes and failures uh, caused by that decision. There's three factors that I look for to help my clients make that decision. The first one is the relationship history prior to the infidelity. And there is three categories of uh, clients uh, when it comes to, to the relationship history. There is the one who had it and lost it. And there is the one who never had it in the first place. And there is a hybrid somewhere in between. Uh, All of them can be candidates for rebuilding their relationship, but there are different levels of successes and failures. So what do I mean, had it and lost it or never had it? The one who had and lost it, these are the couple who entered their relationship for the right reason, the right motivation, but life happened and created an individual issue or relationship issue, environmental issue they were not able to resolve, right? And they drifted and dealt on that dysfunction through infidelity. The one who never had it in the first place, these are the folks who were in the relationship for the wrong reason. They're, they're not compatible from day one. The relationship was bad and infidelity is just icing on the cake. Uh, the, the, the hybrid is the one in between. The one who you know can recall some aspect of the relationship working, but it, it, it was lost way early on in the relationship. The one who never had it in the first place is going to be the least successful candidate in rebuilding the relationship because... They don't have the muscle memory, and also what's my incentive to rebuild a relationship that was bad from day one and infidelity is the crowning achievement of how bad this relationship was. Mm-hmm. The one with the highest chances of rebuilding their relationship is the one who had it it because they have the muscle memory, they have the investment, and there is a reference point that can compel them to say maybe we can get back to that healthy level or even be healthier than it was. And the one the hybrid is you know somewhere in between in terms of probability of successes and failures.
0: Right, yeah So I guess How how do you bounce back from that In that case Like what questions do you Ask people to ask themselves
1: So, so the first thing that we do Before we even talk about the infidelity The first thing we do is Give a lot of history mm-hmm. I need to Know uh, how did this relationship started and how we got here. This will help me look at the relationship factors that might have contributed to infidelity. Uh, and also uh, other relationships that you, the people had prior to being in the current relationship. And also a family of origin history so that we can uncover individual issues and past trauma. Because that context is important for, for us to have before we talk about the infidelity or the narrative of the affair, because that's going to help us put the context. Uh, put, the, put the narrative within the context of everything else around it. Once we identify the what and the why, it is important to acknowledge the impact of infidelity. And this is something that people should do. This is one of the crucial milestones. Uh, this is the uh, opportunity for them faithful to not only showcase intellectually that they understand the damage that they have caused by the act of infidelity, but also it's an opportunity for them to showcase the right emotional experience associated with that understanding why is that important because um if if you are the the betrayed and you want to uh consider should i rebuild with the unfaithful why would you want to rebuild with somebody who doesn't know the damage that was caused or somebody who knows the damage intellectually right but they are not showcasing the right emotion they said yeah i did it and I, i don't feel guilty i don't feel bad i would do it again so that's remember I said there's three areas that help people kind of assess should we rebuild or not? So that's the other area is how do people do in acknowledging the impact of infidelity, how people do in telling the story and being honest and transparent. And the third area of assessment is you know the type of infidelity that took place and why it happened. and there is no right or wrong answer for that one. Uh, it's just really people, different point of views uh, of what they see as forgivable. Some people are more willing to move past an emotional infidelity versus sexual. Others feels differently. Uh, but also, why that fair happened. Some people might be willing to rebuild if the reason why the infidelity happened were primar, primarily individual. They say, you know what? It's not personal. It's not about me. We get you the help you need, and this won't happen again. Other people might say... No, I don't want to work with somebody with, with infidelity happened for individual reasons because I have no control over how seriously you're going to take your recovery, right? And that's bringing it back to how do you bounce back? If you engage in that process, it's going to give you the opportunity to get all this data and make an informed decision. But also, you have to think about it as this is your opportunity to recalibrate, right? After the infidelity happened and you get all this data and you make a choice, this is your opportunity to figure out what went wrong, whether in this relationship or your choice in being in this relationship. And really not being impulsive into making a decision uh, for the wrong reason or also jumping into a new relationship without being ready. So I always encourage people, pause bouncing back, require pausing for recalibration, regardless of whether you're going to stay in this relationship or going to be uh uh, healing separately, but more importantly, not just engaging in the couple's infidelity recovery process, people also need the individual therapy support to help mm-hmm. them deal with the impact of the trauma. Mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's that brings us, I guess, uh, to our kind of interview section, and we might move on into something that couples who are dealing with this perhaps can put into practice um in our experiment debrief um so did you have a practice to help avoid or deal with infidelity that you recommend
1: yes so so this is a practice really more along the line of the prevention piece as well as this is for the folks who decided to repair their relationship i remember earlier on i said i i I, you know Definition of infidelity related to a relationship contract, I really believe relationships should operate like partnerships and successful partnership enterprises. They usually have meetings, right? What is the purpose of a business meeting? Purpose of business meeting is to make sure that both partners are able to be on the same page and addressing new changes and development in their life. Is this partnership is fruitful? Is it not, right? So I always encourage my clients, the one who's dealing with infidelity and the one who are not to have a business meeting for the relationship Uh, because this is an opportunity for both partners to come in and be able to uh, make sure that they are addressing uh, not only what's working, but also the things that they have concern about that could potentially cause a problem. So it's a preventative tool, but it's also as the maintenance for the relationship in order for it to be fruitful and productive.
0: Mm, And it's also kind of a way of making sure that you're both on the same page. Um, in terms Ab- of absolutely.
1: Yeah.
0: yeah. What are three good things about um, this practice?
1: Uh, one, it gives you the opportunity to uh, highlight what's working and get the validation for your effort so that you know that your effort is going in the right direction. Uh, two, it gives you the advantage to preemptively deal with potential changes because I would say, just because we're able to meet each other's needs right now, it doesn't mean we're going to be able to do so forever, right? Because every new things in life that happens, whether it's something, any new stressor, whether positive or negative, whether it's something that we choose to have in our life or something that just thrusted upon us is going to impact our ability to meet each other's needs. So if we know what those stressors are ahead of time, or at least early on when they happen, we can renegotiate how is this going to impact our ability to meet each other's needs. Because to expect our needs fulfillment to be exactly the same prior to this new stressor is unrealistic. But also to give up on meeting needs just because we have this new stressor, that's going to create a relationship deficit. So we need to be able to actually pause and figure out a new way for us to fulfill each other's needs under the light of this new stressor. Uh, but the third aspect, this is the you know the third benefit of this practice. This can help a lot of people with the communication and conflict resolution because oftentimes people don't communicate or have conflict until something happened in the moment. And when they communicate about it in the moment, you're communicating about it in wartime, meaning that feelings are hurt. You're not going to be able to articulate your point of view. You're not going to be listening well. But if you actually bring this to a business meeting where you know that you carved out this time for you to be in your best state of mind to address those issues, you're prepared. You can really think about what is it that you're going to talk about. Choosing the best word to do this is going to help you Get better in communicating your thoughts and feelings and have a better chance of resolving conflict because you're doing it in peacetime versus wartime when something bad happened and we're trying to deal with it in the moment.
0: hmm mm-hmm, for sure. What are the challenges that people might come across?
1: In, uh, in adopting this idea? Mm-hmm. So so I would say uh, most challenges that I hear people at this related to how seriously people take their relationship, you know, do we have the time, you know, who has the energy, who does this? Uh, for me, I really believe that people make the time for the things that are important for them. So, so if I ask you, what are the things that you do on your own internally without somebody reminding you to do on a daily basis, what would they be? If you just give me examples.
0: Uh on my own uh, that I yeah. make time for, um, I guess my family, um, okay. I work <laughs> always making time for work. Um, and l- well this past year I've been trying to make sure that I have, um, time to read and creative, write. They're like hobbies of mine. So I've tried to make sure to prioritize that. Um, but, I suppose I don't know if that answers your question, or if that's an but appropriate that's, answer. I,
1: I, no, that, that, that's an excellent answer. And, yeah. and my follow-up is that you usually do these things on your own. Nobody have to say, "Hey, you have to do this," or somebody have to remind you.
0: Yeah. Well, yeah. I know when I'm working, so I don't have to be. I don't have to be reminded. Perfect. And Perfect. then I spend time with Perfect. my family. Yeah.
1: And, and, and that actually clearly illustrates my point. I really believe if people value their relationship the same way they value their work or other interests that they have. They're going to be more successful in making this business meaning a priority because they get the benefit of it, and they're actually going to make the time. I really believe that people make the time for the things important in their life. Mm-hmm. The ones who usually who push against this idea, their relationship satisfaction is doesn't seem to be a high priority for them. Mm-hmm. And and my rebuttal when I hear that comment, I would say, okay, well, you know, even if their relationship is not the most important thing in your life selfishly is going to impact you, because if you're not happy in your relationship or if your partner is not happy with you, every other aspect of your life is going to suffer. So why not carve out the time to make sure that this aspect of your life is in balance so that other areas of your life doesn't suffer? So really everybody wins, like even the ones who have a different level of priority. But I also think this is an indication of a compatibility too, because if you have people who, you know, for them, their relationship is a high priority and the person relationship is just like an adjunct service these people are going to struggle because one is more serious about their relationship and somebody else is looking for something casual. Uh, and I was kind of emphasized too, in terms of a challenge of doing this is that this is not date night. This is, you know, this is, this is a business meeting. People need to, to do this on a regular basis. Uh, when they do this, they need to be prepared. And also, um, uh, having this conversation in, in the ideal environment, meaning no distractions, uh, you know, not under the influence so that the conversation can be productive. Mm-hmm. Um, so these are kind of the challenges that I've seen people kind of implementing this is just feeling they don't have the time, but I really feel like as you invest in it, you know, it will save you a lot of time down the road.
0: Yeah, yeah, for sure. When you mentioned that this is something that needs to be done regularly, how often do you recommend um people employ this practice
1: so in a perfect world i'd say you know once a week take a half an hour to an hour right uh you know go for coffee or you know find some place quiet where you just prepare and have this conversation uh but at a minimum at least once a month because life change right and Mm -hmm. and and uh and I think, again, it's just being able to kind of having these meetings on regular intervals. And you can have a meeting for, you know, what are goals for this year as a family or as a relationship. So you can also have an annual meeting in addition to those ones. And also people think of it as your own therapy session. So save your money, right? If, if you already saw a therapist and, you know, you got a good plan because you can, you can do maintenance in your own if you're on the right track. So in a sense, that would actually kind of empower people not to rely so much on therapy. Uh, therapy is important, uh, but there are a lot of people who kind of abuse couples counseling and they use it as an opportunity to vent out and have somebody resolve conflicts for them because they don't really want to take the time and effort to learn how to do this in themselves.
0: Absolutely. Um, Based on your experience, do you have any other kind of recommendations of a practice or habit that you would employ alongside the business proposal?
1: Absolutely. Uh, And this would be an advice that I give for the unfaithful clients, as well as the one who are trying to to have preventative measures for individual factors that could lead to infidelity. Uh, One of the common individual factors for infidelity is a term that I coined as egocentric morality. What do I mean by this? Uh, We all are faced with moral dilemmas on a regular basis, and some of those, not all of these moral dilemmas, are related to fidelity. But I would argue that fidelity is a key component of moral reasoning. And uh, somebody with egocentric morality is somebody who, oftentimes, is impulsive, uh, self-centered. Their cognitive analysis, whenever they are facing any decision, is really related to what would they gain and lose. Uh, and they're not really thinking about how this decision or the consequences of the decision are going to impact others. And on the rare occasions, they, they think about how this is going to impact my partner, how it's going to impact my family. They engage in rationalization or emotional disconnection, right? Because if you rationalize it or you emotionally distance yourself from it, it's going to allow you to kind of ignore that blind spot and do it anyway. So what I recommend for them is to really uh, create, if they haven't, Or reevaluate their value system. Uh, Because I really believe if you have a clear value system and those values are yours, nobody forced them on you culturally, spiritually. These are your own values. They are your own values. It's going to be a lot easier for you to make morally right choices. Uh, And I always encourage that faithful who is guilty of egocentric morality, if they're trying to rebuild their relationship or just feeling individually, you know, once you redevelop your. Moral compass, any decision you make, big or small, you have to measure it. Does it go with or against these values before you act upon it? And the more you do that, the more successful that you are in making morally sound decisions that not only benefit people around you, but it's going to make you feel good about yourself. Because for me, morality is not just for others. It's for you as an individual. Are you you living up to the vision of yourself that you would like to have? Right. That the byproduct of that would be everybody else wins, especially if you're, you know, you have a good moral compass. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
0: That's a really, really good way of putting it, I think, um, and kind of evaluating yourself as we've kind of addressed throughout the, the, the episode so far is is so important is to prevention of infidelity and also managing infidelity because uh, there's so much other stuff going on. You really have to kind of constantly measure where you're
1: at. Well, well, sure. And let's and, and bring up another, I guess, popular idea for me, but uh, not everybody likes this idea. And I always thought, like people make the wrong assumption that you the know, only, only thing you need is love. Yes, you need love. It's the most essential ingredients that you need for a healthy, successful relationship. But by itself uh, could actually mean d- do more harm than good. Love doesn't conquer all, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and then also... People can make the mistake that just because we're happy and satisfied with one another right now, that will always be the case. And people forget that things change. We grow as people, and sometimes our needs change. And if I'm not paying attention to those needs are being changed, or I'm paying, you know, paying attention to the changes I'm not giving my partner the memo, that is the fastest way for a relationship deficit. So the only way for couples to achieve this happily ever after forever is by consistently Evaluating and seeing if the two, if you know, two or three or whoever, how many people we have in this relationship, if this partnership is still meeting everybody's needs. The moment that it stops and we're unable to do so, that's the moment to actually end that relationship versus being in it and hope uh, for infidelity not to happen.
0: Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Well, final, final section of um, this episode is uh, the open mic section where I give you a chance to talk about anything that you're passionate about. And it could be related to the topic. It might not be related to the topic, but I understand you have a new book out, so you might want to talk about that.
1: Absolutely. So, so the, the first thing that I want to say, I want to give it's, it's a message for counselors, and I will also do a message for potential uh, folks who are struggling with fidelity. So my message for counselors, uh, this is regardless whether you work with couple or you don't work with couple, infidelity recovery is something that you should know about. You should be trained in because even if you just work with kids, you need to know how does infidelity impact the kids and, in the fact, their development. This is something, unfortunately, a lot of training programs and uh, practicum sites don't train people in because there is no... Uh, there hasn't been, up to this point, a model for people to follow. So it's not a luxury, it's a necessity. In order for you to be a clinician, you need to be able to get that training. And you can get on the Systematic FA Recovery Therapy uh, website and you'll find a variety of certification courses as well as uh, individual courses. Uh, my message for the people who are dealing with infidelity, uh, it, you don't have to do this alone. Uh, you need to uh, to use this as an opportunity to reflect on what happened, to help you make sense of it and to actually choose the right path of recovery that is healthy for you. And uh, the longer the infidelity is one of those things that you cannot fix on your own. Uh, because you're too close to the situation. Yes, read books. I don't even say it. And in my books, I always say, like, this book's not going to fix your problem. This is just information. Infidelity is one of those things where you actually have to get qualified help to address it. Uh, the last piece, uh, I guess, my new book is going to be coming out at the end of this month. I'll show you the proof copy. So it should be available on Amazon called uh, Unfaithful and Unrepentant, Affairs Beyond the Hope of Repair. So this book actually talks about the specific archetypes of unfaithful partners who are just not a good candidate for healing through repairing their relationship. And it explains who these folks are, uh, their origin story, uh, why, the, the challenges that these archetypes present uh, on the recovery process needed for people to heal.
0: mm Mm, Absolutely. Well, I'm really excited to read that. And it's been amazing to chat to you so far today, Dr. Talal. Um, Where can people find you?
1: Uh, Folks can find me on my main website, talalalsaleem.com. Uh, Or they can find me on my other website, the Infidelity Counseling Center. And also, um, uh, I have a YouTube channel. It's uh, the Infidelity Doctor, uh, where people can actually see uh, the docu-series that shows uh, systematic affair recovery therapy with real couples showing their recovery journey beginning to an end. No script. This is real therapy. Uh, And also uh, on my YouTube channel, there is an Ask Dr. Talal segment. So folks are encouraged to ask me any questions about infidelity recovery and prevention.
0: Yeah. So if you've got any questions for Dr. Talal, feel free to shoot them to his YouTube channel. Uh, But thank you again for joining me. I've had such a lovely time chatting to you today. Likewise. You've been listening to Reloscope, the Relationship Science Insights podcast produced by LMSL, the Life Management Science Lab. For more episodes like this from 10 different life management perspectives, search LMSL on YouTube, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, and Spotify, or wherever you find your podcasts so you can get updated on everything we have to offer. We have a wide range of topics readily available for you to check out. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider rating our show, sharing it, and subscribing to our channel as it helps us grow and bring you more quality resources. More of our work can be found at re.lmsl.net where you can join our movement. I'm Aditi Kuti, thanks for tuning in.